Welcome to Inspiring Philosophy, the audio format of the powerful apologetic videos from Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. Please consider supporting Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon to get early access to videos, live Q&As, and to help build the largest apologetic library on the internet. Now, let's get started with the show. Hello and welcome back to another bonus podcast episode with Inspiring Philosophy, where Michael Jones answers questions submitted by supporters. How are you doing, Michael? Great. I'm glad to do this again. Yeah, these are fun. And uh, we always appreciate your questions and we also appreciate your support of Inspiring Philosophy. So make sure to become a supporter if you'd like to have your questions answered by Michael. So let's get right into it, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. All right. First question is from Grant from Patreon. He said, I've heard that you support women pastors. To learn different perspectives from a fellow Christian, I'd like to know what is your justification for this? And if there are major differences in your view between a pastor, a spiritual leader, and a priest? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I'll answer the first part, and then I'll move to the second part. So the reason why I'm okay with female pastors is because I see females teaching and delivering revelation in Scripture. I mean, we all know that Jesus first appeared to the women after his resurrection, and then they delivered that revelation to the men. We see in Acts 21.9, Philip's daughters are acting in the position of prophetesses. Uh, and the context seems to suggest they might be in teaching roles. And of course, in Romans 16, it says that Unia was an apostle. Now people push back and says, well, it could mean that she was famous among the apostles. But the modern consensus of scholarship is that she was a female apostle. Uh, for one, even John Chrysostom considered her a female apostle. He said in his homily on Romans, how great is the devotion of this woman, that she should be counted worthy of the appellation of apostle. So we see the early church confirming that she was a female apostle. An apostle was someone who was sent out to teach the gospel, to teach the word. And Paul also adds that she has been an apostle before even he was. So she's been doing this for quite some time, going back to the 30s here. So here we have evidence that early Christian women were in teaching roles or in leading roles. And so I don't see any problem with a female pastor in a teaching role or reading from the scriptures or delivering a message. These kinds of things, we see this throughout the Bible. And even if we go into the Old Testament, we can see women having these types of roles. Like in Judges, there was a prophetess named Deborah, for example. So there's clearly a precedent already set in Scripture that women can be in teaching roles and can be in leadership roles. Now, I think when we read 1 Timothy 3, he sets up this idea that uh, the head of a church needs to be a man. And it's not because there's anything special about men. I always make the comparison to the Levites. The Levites were appointed as the priests for Israel, not because the Levites were special or had spiritual insight. It's just from God's divine appointment. Likewise, God seems to set up in the new covenant that the head of a church needs to be a man, not because men are more special than women. That'd be nonsense. Paul obviously says that men and women are completely equal. Uh, they are. We are both sons. And that's important because in the ancient world, the son was the one who got all the inheritance. But Paul says in his letters that we are all sons, and he's writing to men and women. So women will also share in the inheritance of Christ. You can also see 1 Peter 2.5 says that all believers are a holy priesthood, including women. So the way I sort of balance this is I say that the head of a church 
according to the stipulations, needs to be male. But under that, there can be many women in teaching and pastoral roles that can work and operate within the church. And I think this is the biblical mode that is sort of set up. All right. Thanks for that answer, Michael. Let's move on to the next one. Next question is from Alexander from Patreon. Alexander asks, is the early church in unanimous agreement with the authorship of all the writings in the New Testament? So from my research, it does appear that they're in unanimous agreement with regards to most of the writings. The exception is always going to be Hebrews because it's a truly anonymous work. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. And so early church fathers sort of struggled and was like, well, maybe it was this guy. Maybe it was that guy. And Origen was like, well, only God knows. Let's be honest. So Origen, other church fathers, they wrestled with that one. But Hebrews is a truly anonymous work. So we're not ever going to be entirely sure who wrote that book. It was sort of included in Paul's letters for who knows whatever reasons. Maybe it was a sermon Paul had that he liked. Maybe he wrote in a very odd way to disguise himself because he was writing to the Hebrews and he didn't want them to know they were getting a letter from Paul. We don't know. There's so much debate about this. Uh, could have been a disciple of Paul. So maybe it was Luke. We don't know. Yeah, Endless debate. When it comes to the other writings of the New Testament, I don't see much, if any, debate with regards to them. All the letters that are attributed to Paul, people say Paul wrote them. Same with the letters of John, uh, Peter. Uh, some early church fathers doubted there was a second letter of Peter, but no one attributed the second letter of Peter to like you know Andrew or Philip or that kind of thing. And when it comes to the Gospels, uh, this is what I've looked at the most. We have unanimous agreement. The entire early church agrees it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not until you get to the fourth century do we see any writing suggesting other authors for these works. Like in the fourth century, you have Epiphanius mentioning heretics claiming that maybe John didn't write his gospel. But in the first few centuries of Christianity, uh, the early church is unanimous that it goes back to these four men. So that's very powerful evidence. Now, some will bring up, they'll argue that, well, in the first century after the Gospels were written, we don't see anybody attributing authorship to them at all. So you have Justin Martyr saying that they are the memoirs of the apostles. And so some skeptics use this as evidence that they were originally anonymous and that they only had the names attributed to them. Uh, when you start approaching, you're getting closer to the second century. Now, there's pushback on that. There's a lot of problems with that type of reasoning. First, why would you attribute two of them to Mark and Luke, who were men who never met or saw Jesus, but were disciples of the uh, of the disciples? That would be very rare. And interestingly enough, in Justin Martyr's writings, he talks about the gospel of Mark a little bit, and he refers to things in it, and he says, this is something that came from Peter. If they were anonymous at that point, why not when you get to the time of Irenaeus or Clement of Alexandria? Are you not attributing that gospel to Peter? Why downgrade it to a disciple of Peter? That doesn't make any sense if Justin Martyr is already hinting to the idea that this is something that came from Peter. Just attribute it as the gospel of Peter. And so it makes no sense to attribute another gospel to Luke, who was a companion of Paul. Paul was not a disciple of Jesus, and Luke was a companion of him. So you're it's getting further removed. Why attribute the gospel that was written directly to Jews as being written by a tax collector. That would have offended them. You're not doing yourself any favors. And then you would wait to the last gospel that was written and you assign that one to a disciple that was close to Jesus. If you were making this up, you did it in a very, very horrible way. No forger would go about it with this way. Another way to push back on this is we don't see people really questioning the gospels early on. You have Justin Martyr. He's writing a dialogue with Trypho the Jew and he's writing apologies to like the emperor. 
They're not going to care who wrote these Gospels. There's no reason for them to bring up the authorship of them. But when you start approaching the end of the second century, you have the Marcion heresy come up. Marcion was a heretic, and church fathers say that he took a version of Luke, mutilated and tried to sneak it into the church as an authentic gospel. Then all of a sudden we see church fathers going, no, no, no. We only accept the gospels that came from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is a forgery that Marcion is trying to sneak into the church. So now they have a, an apologetic reason to start mentioning the four authors of the gospels. Prior to this, there was no reason for them to. The church unanimously would have accepted these gospels as coming from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There was no one really challenging them on, the, on this yet or trying to sneak in forged gospels. But the moment Marcion comes along with his forged gospel, tries to sneak something in, they're immediately like, no, 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 we only accept those ones from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So now they have an apologetic reason. So there's actually a, a good precedent set for why earlier church fathers like Ignatius, Polygarp, Justin Martyr are not going to mention the gospel authors. There was no reason for them to yet. So again, when it comes to the New Testament writings, it's very, very likely they all go back to the authors that wrote them, especially the Gospels. And you can check out my series on YouTube. I have a playlist that I'm currently adding to called The Reliability of the Gospels. And part two goes over this, a lot of the evidence that the uh, four traditional authors are authentic and probably originally included when the Gospels were written. Yeah, that's great. I noticed that a lot of these questions and a lot of the content that you've been creating has been in defense of the authenticity of the New Testament and scriptures. And uh, it's been extremely helpful for me personally. So thank you for your work on this. Yeah, I'll be doing uh, four videos starting this summer where I'll be doing a video arguing that Mark wrote Mark, Matthew wrote Matthew, Luke wrote Luke, and John wrote John. And there's a lot of data that I'm even gathering from atheist scholars to make this argument that, especially with Mark, that it really does come from Mark, the interpreter of Peter. So those will be the last four videos in this series. Awesome. Really looking forward to those. Next question is somewhat similar as far as biblical authorship. Eric from Patreon asks, hey, IP, is there a tactic to quickly end the, quote, picks or it didn't happen? Which I'm assuming he's referring to the objection that a lot of atheists or critics of Christianity will raise that say there's no contemporary evidence of the Bible, Jesus, Christianity, etc., what do you think about that? Yeah, if you're looking for a nice witty comeback, depending on the right context, I'll say something like, okay, well, pics of your parents doing it years ago, or you were actually adopted, uh, you know, <laughs> because their argument is, is really just ridiculous. They're just trying yeah. to be witty and funny. And so just be witty and funny back with them. Uh, of course, they'll get angry with that because they'll get triggered and they'll be like, well, I can do a DNA test. And you say, well, DNA test can be forged. I mean, really, when someone says that, they're just not going to be convinced by any evidence, probably. Uh, because pictures can be forged. We have Photoshop today. We have AI generators. They're just trying to find some sort of quick way to dismiss evidence for Christianity because they don't want to think about it. I mean, no one would apply this rule to actual history. No one says, well, I don't believe Caesar actually crossed the Rubicon because there's no pics of it. That's nonsense. They're, they're, they're not really applying critical thinking to these types of things. They just don't want to think about the evidence. So they're trying to come up with some witty way to dismiss Christianity quickly. And so just be witty back. Use their skepticism against them. If they're just going to dismiss the evidence, no matter what you present, just come up with something strange like, you know, you, well, you were actually adopted and your parents have been lying to you. What? You don't have a pick of, of this actually happening? Well, I guess, you know, I must be right. Oh, you have a DNA test? Well, that can be forged. Just, just take their skepticism and just take it to its reasonable conclusion and just deny any evidence that you want 
and they'll see the absurdity of what they're doing, hopefully. Yeah, this might be a bit of a segue, but what are your thoughts on atheists that you might encounter online that basically embrace anti-theism, where no matter what evidence you give them, no matter what answers you give them, they're just going to outright shirk them? Do you think that sometimes a sassy remark is the best thing you can do? Or? I mean, I'll do a sassy remark if I'm not going to waste time with them. And right. it's just it just a, becomes a public spectacle. So it's more for the audience at that point, let's be honest. But when I deal with anti-theists, the best approach is really to go to the utility of Christianity. Because a lot of these anti-theists are driven by this motive that religion is harmful and we need to get rid of it and we're doing humanity a favor. And quite frankly, they're very ignorant on the sociology of religion, especially when it comes to Christianity. I can make a case that there is harmful effects from Islam very easily. But it's much, much harder with Christianity because there's so much sociological research on it that demonstrates over and over again that Christian societies thrive and Christianity leads to all sorts of positive benefits. And then they'll appeal to you know secular Europe and they'll go, look at these countries. And then you just push back and go, well, first of all, a lot of these cultures are still thriving on the Christian values they've inherited. Give secularism time. Christianity took centuries to infiltrate the culture and make cultural changes. Likewise, secularism is very, very recent. Let's see what happens when kids are born who have great grandparents that were atheists and their grandparents were atheists and their parents were atheists. They're just completely surrounded by atheists and they are completely divorced from any sort of Christian heritage. Let's see the society they produced. And then you can tell me secularism is just as good as Christianity. All you need to do is read books like Dominion by the historian Tom Holland or Mm -hmm. uh, Christianity and Human Rights and Introduction, which has a different author for each chapter. They just see that the society we're living in is thoroughly built on Christian values. And so when the anti-theist is attacking Christianity, they're really just pulling the rug right out from under them because all of the good ideas we have in society, or at least a, a large amount of them, come from Christian history and Christian values and doctrines. And when we take away that foundation, we're not going to see some good effects in the long run. And research is already starting to bear that out, as I've discussed on my channel. Awesome. Yeah. And speaking of Tom Holland, the interview that Michael Jones did with Tom Holland is the very first episode of this podcast. So make sure to scroll all the way back. If you want to hear that one, it's one of the highest downloaded episodes. Really amazing interview there. So highly recommend listening to that if you have some time after this episode. Just one final question here to follow up with what you're talking about here. What can Patreon supporters expect on this topic? Because I hear rumors that you're working on something as far as the the power of Christianity and how it's affected culture and society in general. Well, I've already done several videos on this, but since I did those videos, I found more research of the benefits of Christianity. So I did a video called Is Christianity Harmful, which is like 50 minutes long of all the research showing that Christianity leads to and is associated with a lot of positive benefits. Did another video called Does Christianity Cause War and Violence? And shows that no, Christianity is negatively associated with war and violence in the research. I did a video, Does Christianity Cause Christian Nationalism? And no, Christianity leads away from nationalism, fascism, authoritarian ideas, more research on that. But since then, I found even more research on the positive benefits of Christian missionary activity. And I went down a rabbit hole. So I read one study and it linked me to like seven others. And I read those and they linked them more. So I found a whole bunch of different studies on the positive benefits of Christian missionary activity. So I'll have a video on that coming out in April or so, and you'll be surprised by the amount of positive benefits that flow from Christianity. And again, these are not just opinions of authors. A lot of these studies I'm citing ran OLS models to demonstrate this, and they were comparing Christianity in places like India with 
Hinduism and, and Islam. So you can see how it stacks up against other worldviews. And again, it always outperforms them. Awesome. Definitely looking forward to that video. All right. Final question. Darby from Patreon asks, many answers to objections surrounding biblical texts come down to misinterpretation based on the English not being properly translated to give the full or proper meaning. Example, do not murder is more accurate than do not kill. So why isn't there a single English translation containing all of these translation slash contextual corrections? Yeah, that's a difficult question that's going to attack more to the poet. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the Patreon-only Q&A podcast. If you want to hear the full version of this podcast and receive other bonus content like early access to videos, private live streams for donors, and much, much more, please consider becoming a supporter of Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon or Locals. Either go to patreon.com forward slash inspiringphilosophy or inspiringphilosophy.locals.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Philosophy. And a special thanks to the Inspiring Philosophy supporters who made this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help the ministry of Inspiring Philosophy continue, prayerfully consider becoming a supporter of this show by visiting patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. That's patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. And if you want to watch Inspiring Philosophy videos, make sure to follow Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube.